in our quest to sort of comply over the last sort of 10, 15 years, that if you pick your head up and you start looking at this sort of compliance endeavor, you realize it's absurd and it's sort of changed your relationship with the patient. You're practicing for the regulators if you're not careful. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit our big summer fundraiser going on right now at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from This Week in Blackness, The Young Turks, Talk Poverty Radio, In Deep with Angie Coiro, Amicus from Slate, and Activism Today for Act for Women. got a ruling in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt, which is the most important abortion decision to come down from the Supreme Court since 19... I mean, you could argue since 2000 in Gonzalez v. Carhartt, but that was a bullshit. That was a shitty decision for us. But since 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, for certain. Texas passed this law, HB2. It contained multiple provisions, a lot of terrible provisions, two of which were challenged by a clinic in... Uh, is it, where is it? The clinic is it in Austin. It's not in Austin. Anyway, it's a clinic run by Amy Hackstrom Miller, who's awesome. But um, these two provisions are as follows. One, it requires doctors to maintain admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the location of the abortion. And two, it required abortion clinics to be retrofitted to comply with standards that are applicable to ambulatory surgical centers, which is a fancy word for for an inpatient surgical center. Or out, excuse me, outpatient surgical center. Um, the first, the admitting privileges laws have been passed in 10 states so far. They've been challenged in, I believe, four states. Um, and these laws are the, the politicians who pass these laws keep telling us that they are about protecting women's health and safety. Women's health and safety, women's health and safety. These laws are about protecting women's health and safety, but they're not. Because admitting privileges law laws sort of harken back to a time when we had this country doctor style of medicine where you had one doctor and that doctor was the doctor for your family and he would do everything from like birth your chillins to like cure your cancer to like make your kids keep your kids from dying of scurvy or whatever That's some happens. One stop shopping. Right one stop general. I miss those days. General practitioner doctors. And these are the doctors that, you know, if you had to go to the hospital, those doctors would actually have admitting privileges at the local hospital because there's only one goddamn hospital in the entire town. Um, in actuality, what happens now is if you suffer a complication, a complication from abortion, you call the ambulance and the ambulance comes and picks you up and takes you to whatever hospital is closest to your house. They don't go back to wherever you got the abortion and take you to a hospital that is close to that clinic. And the notion that they would do that becomes even more ridiculous once you realize that HB2 cut down the number of clinics from 40 to about seven or eight. That means there are, there were millions, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women that were living well beyond a hundred miles of an abortion clinic. So the idea that an ambulance is going to come to your house and then drive you a hundred miles to a clinic that is 30 miles from where you, uh, to a hospital that is 30 miles from where you had the abortion is ludicrous on its face. And imagine what that ambulance bill would be. Right? Insane. Insane in the membrane. Insane. The second, um, provision is the, the ASC requirement, ambulatory surgical center requirement, which, um, are regulations that outpatient surgical centers have to require. And we're talking outpatient surgical centers where you have like serious surgeries, not 
surgical abortions, which most of most of them don't don't involve any sort of cutting whatsoever. Um, They may involve suction. And a lot of times, because a lot of these um, procedures take place during the first trimester um, of an abortion, I'm sorry, the first trimester of a pregnancy, (laughs) the first trimester abortion, your first trimester of pregnancy, you're usually taking a medicine and you don't need to be in a hospital or an AS or, or outpatient surgical center in order to take a pill because it's absurd. It's a ridiculous requirement. But some of these other requirements include things like requiring hallways to be a certain number of feet long. This law required them to be eight feet long so that you could have two gurneys, you know, with like people on them who were going to like heart transplants and shit, be able to pass one another in a hallway. Well, you need or, a lot of space. Or you're, I feel like you're ignoring the idea, Monty, that maybe, maybe people like to do the Dougie as they're going down the hallway. That's a good And they point. need as much space. Maybe they, maybe they want to dab. Maybe they want to do the electric That's slide. Point. That's a good point. Like, I feel like you're not really thinking about the bigger picture here, Monty. I understand. I want rights for my vagina. I get, I get it and everything, but are you, are you thinking about I'm not thinking about slide? the Dougie or the electric slide. You are absolutely right, sir. See, I was that, not and, even and, contemplating and, 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 that. And that is why. They hate us. <laughs> Who? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I just, I, just, I, I, I thought that's what uh, people say. I thought that's what us liberals say. And that's why they hate that's us. That's why they hate us. They I hate us know. for our freedoms. And that's what conservatives say. Okay. The point is, is that abortion clinics do not need to be outfitted like ASCs in order to perform the service and in order to perform that, that procedure safely. Abortion is one of the most safe procedures in all of the land. The complication rate for first trimester, first trimester pregnancies... Uh, for abortions that take place during the first trimester of pregnancy is like point zero 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 zero. It's it's really low. It's less than hey, like a hey, half hey, of one percent. Hey, hey, I, I need you to to pull that back there, madam. What? Um, because that isn't that the same like like, like the same numbers that is like around. Uh, what is it? Uh, when uh, people use drugs for welfare and voter fraud. Yeah. And you know that we spent a lot of money on those things. So yeah. why wouldn't we spend money about making things safe? I right, see this is the problem with you liberals. All right. <laughs> You're sitting there. You want to, you want people to have their drugs on their welfare. And then you want people to do what was the other thing I mentioned? I forgot the other thing. Voting fraud. And you want all the <laughs> voting fraud, which now liberals are now jumping on that uh, bandwagon too, since Bernie didn't. We ain't maybe. talking about Bernie today. Um, no Bernie, just, no, just, no justice, I'm just, no I'm Bernie. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> So I'm just, I'm just saying, Imani, like, yes, you're pointing out things that like are, are like, like very, very, very small and like doesn't happen very often, but nah, clearly we spent a lot of money on those things. So That's what you got true. to say about that? Nigga. Um, That's not what I was going <laughs> Me with. neither. I didn't say that. <laughs> nope, nope. Um, but the point is, is that abortion is very, very safe, especially for those, um, I, I think the, 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 the rate of complication for abortions that are performed outside of the, the first trimester is, 0.02%. So it's very small, but yet you have people like Governor Rick Perry and all of these Texas anti-choice politicians just com- just keening about how it's really about a safety for women. We care about women. Please. We want to make sure that women have the safest abortions in all the land, except for the fact that abortion is less complicated than colonoscopies. It's by a factor of 10. By a factor of, I believe, like 50, it's less complicated than liposuction. It's less complicated than... it's Childbirth is 14 times more... You have complications at a rate of 14 times more in childbirth than you do in abortion. And yet... These ambulatory surgical requirements, these trap laws, targeted regulations of abortion providers don't apply to colonoscopies and liposuction. And they don't apply to, for example, midwifery. So if you're in Texas and you want to go give, give, give birth in like a, a pool of water, 
you know, you have one of those hypno births where you're just like breathing through the contractions and a it's birthing like, pool. it's a birthing pool and it's very lovely. You can listen to like, you know, Yanni or Kenny G playing that smooth Enya. saxophone and yeah. <laughs> while your, while your vagina just burps out this child. Oh my God. I want to give birth all over again right now. <laughs> no, you don't. My uterus don't. is contracting. No, it's no. not. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Um, but I if you're, you know, <laughs> something, of, I think something like 20% of, 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 uh, um, births end up at a hospital after they leave the midwife because of these complications. Now that is not to shade mid- midwifery. Childbirth is hard. Yeah. Ask Emily. It's yes. It's not fun. Nope. But the point is, is it gives birth. It, it, it lays bare the lie that these Texas politicians care about women's health and safety because they didn't have any of these regulations for midwives or for plastic surgeons or for ass doctors. Anti-abortion activists and legislators have found a new way to punish women for uh, using their constitutional rights of uh, reproductive freedom, and they're called fetal burial bills. These fetal burial bills demand that women, after having an abortion, must inform the clinic if they want the aborted remains to be cremated or buried. The abortion clinic is financially responsible for completing the task, which in practice means that the woman having the abortion is financially responsible for completing the task. Now, I have never paid for a cremation or a burial, but I have heard stories that they are incredibly expensive, rising into the thousands and thousands of dollars. And so they keep saying they don't want to punish these women for having abortions, and yet you are seeing these bills pop up in more and more states. Idaho, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, they all have bills in their current session right now with language pulled directly from the Americans United for Life's model legislation, which is uh, evocatively titled the Unborn Infants Dignity Act. And so women in all of those states right now, if these bills go through, might end up having to spend thousands more dollars to have the abortions that supposedly they're constitutionally uh, uh, able to have. So they're doing this for two different reasons. The first reason is to further this notion that a fetus is a person that has constitutional rights, right? So there are fetal personhood bills uh, that have been proposed in various red states, um, and they've been deemed unconstitutional because uh, a fetus does not have the same constitutional rights as a human being. Uh, The second reason why they're doing this is because they want it to lead to an undue burden for any woman seeking to get an abortion, which is also something that the Supreme Court decided back in 1973 is against the Constitution, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they said that abortion should not be something that's tied to any undue burden. And making them pay for a cremation or a burial for a zygote or for a fetus is an undue burden, especially financially, right? Yeah. So um, 
look, they can go ahead and try to pass these laws, but what's likely to happen is state resources in the form of taxpayer money is going to be used uh, to defend this type of law, yeah. right? So I don't know if it's going to get all the way to the, to the Supreme Court, but again, it's going to be costly, and they're wasting government resources, taxpayer money on nonsense like this. Yeah, and a very irresponsible, lazy way too. So the, the AUL, uh, they create this model legislation, and then legislators from all these states, they just take it and copy and paste it. Mm -hmm. They don't even do the research. They don't care enough to actually come up with this on their own. They literally take the sentences from the AUL, and then they just try to pass it all over the country. Can I add one more thing to this? Um, there's a reason why you see this assault on reproductive rights during every election, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a midterm election or a general election. They specifically do this not because they believe that it's life at the moment of conception. They specifically do this because they know it will resonate with their right-wing voters and it'll win some brownie points for them, right? Do they genuinely care about this issue? No, because if you genuinely cared about this issue as a politician, you'd be a warrior for this issue from the very beginning and you wouldn't stop. Yeah. But they always propose this legislation in the year leading up to the election. Yeah. It's kind of yeah. incredible. Look, I honestly think that on the other side, they should, look, Democrats uh, typically, historically, have been very hesitant to use abortion in their ads because they know that people uh, aren't necessarily exactly sure exactly what should be done in every case. Um, and there are certainly, there, there are regulations on abortion that you can come up with that are shockingly popular yeah. uh, across the country. Here's one that won't be. If you put an ad saying Republicans think that women should be forced to pay thousands of dollars to have burials for fetuses that were two months old at the time that they were aborted. Nobody thinks that women should be forced to do that. That is obviously a punishment. And we saw how people responded to the Donald Trump thing um, when he talked about having a small fine on a woman. This is a fine of literally thousands of dollars at the very least. Uh, but it actually goes beyond that. It's, it's not the only way that they want to punish the women. Uh, the AUL's bill is meant to be applied to every instance of fetal death, irrespective of the duration of pregnancy. In some cases, this would mean a woman who took an abortion pill a couple months into a pregnancy would be asked if she wanted a quarter-sized blood clot to be formally buried. She would then get a death certificate. Wow. So it's, it's not a baby, man. It's I not understand a that it's awkward. I understand it's uncomfortable. But we're talking about almost nothing, a few cells. And they want to put it in a coffin, and they want to bury it. They want a gravestone for a blood clot. And they're serious, and they're trying to pass this all over the country. And by the way, that death certificate thing there is not there just by chance. It's not just to recognize that the, the fetus was a person. If a state is going to require a fetal death certificate for every abortion, the name of the woman who's had the abortion could be made public record as a result of those being public records. And so that's a great way to shame women and not, into not having abortions. If anybody could just randomly look it up, like, oh, I go on the state registry and I find out who had an abortion, and then I can attack them for it if I want to. These stories always irritate me because, again, it's usually due to political reasons that politicians go after women who want abortions, go after reproductive rights. But there's another element to this that I don't think gets talked about enough. This isn't about preserving life. This is about punishing women who have sex, who get pregnant, and want to solve that problem. If they don't want the baby, well, too bad. You got to suffer the consequences. You had sex. You deserve to be punished. There's no easy way out. Yeah. There's that mentality. There's that attitude. And it's, it's more about that than anything else. Because if you look at legislation that's proposed, it always focuses on preserving life 
But once that baby's born, they don't care about making sure that that child is taken care of if he or she is born into a poor family. They don't care about providing any type of governmental assistance to make sure that that person has a shot in life, right? If you really care about life, then you would look out for them. But they don't look out for them. All they do is focus on how they can punish the women and make them pay the consequences yeah. for having sex. We have these traditions, and uh, many people follow them. They either cremate, cremate or they bury. Some countries have other rituals. If I didn't want to do that, what right do you have to tell me I need to do that for a 70-year-old corpse, let alone a 10-week-old fetus? There are some people who have abortions and want a procedure like this. There are some people who have miscarriages or lose a child and they want to have a burial or they want to have a cremation. They are 100% free to do that and I would speak out to protect their right to do that. But it is nobody's right other than the person in that family to choose what happens to those remains. It's certainly not the right of some legislator in Indiana to get involved in that. One of the big ones that we were cheering um, down the halls for was uh, Whole Woman's Health yep. um, versus uh, Hellerstedt. Is that how you say it? I believe that's right. They're irrelevant now at this point, but it's uh, Whole Woman's Health. Um, in a five to three decision, um, the court uh, upheld a woman's right to choose. Yeah, this is a, this is a big deal. I mean, this is hugely significant. Because it takes away the strongest weapon that abortion opponents had in the legal doctrine that existed before this case. And it did it largely because of anti-abortion groups' own hubris. So what – Which almost makes it even more beautiful. It really is lovely. As an observer. Yeah. Watching them fall on their own sword, it was – just delightful. Um, So break down this undue burden stuff for us. What does that mean? Sure. So so our abortion law in this country has really been a mess of unclarity for a long time. So in in, in 1992, um, this is where this term undue burden comes from. um, The Supreme Court handed down a case called Casey. Casey actually significantly weakened the right to choose. And it said that the new standard, which was a standard that was developed by the Reagan administration in the 1980s, is that the only circumstances where a state can't regulate or restrict abortion is if doing so would impose an undue burden on a significant number of women's ability to obtain an abortion. And if that phrase sounds vague to you, that's because it is. <laughs> um, and so what happened is in the lower courts where you had conservative judges um, who were inclined against the right to choose, they you know, read undue burden very narrowly because it's not a very clear phrase and it plausibly can be read very narrowly. Um, the second important thing that happened is that in 2007 – There was a case where the um, Supreme Court upheld a ban on a particular form of abortion. Um, It was a rarely used procedure that was considered to be the safest way of performing abortions under certain circumstances. And the important part of that case is uh, Justice Kennedy wrote this line in the majority opinion where he said where if there's medical uncertainty – 
the court will typically um, defer to the legislature in resolving, you know, whether this really is the safest or not or, or a question like that. That is the phrase that formed the basis of the Texas law. And I apologize. It's been a, a long explanation. No, but, no I, th- um, I think it's helpful, helpful to understand, um, even for – I feel like this is actually flashing me back to law school because I, I had blocked out how Casey came to be and, and all of this. So please, please, it, Ian, no, please. It, it's easy to block out. It's good for your mental health. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so like – so in, in Gonzales, the court interde- interjected this medical uncertainty language. And so what a bunch of states, including Texas, did was they took that language and ran with it. They said, well, what if we pass laws that look like health laws? You know, they, they look like they're trying to, re- to make abortion clinics safer. They don't actually make them safer. What they do do is they make it really expensive to run an abortion clinic and they make it really hard for doctors to get the credentials that they now need in order to perform abortions. But if you don't know much about health policy, it looks like a health law. And if anyone complains that it's not um, actually a real health law, then you say, oh, medical uncertainty. And, you know, maybe you introduce some some expert witnesses, I'm doing scare quotes here, expert <laughs> witnesses um, who are doctors who are against abortion will testify, well, yeah, sure, I think this will help health, women's health or something. And that's what Texas did here is they passed sham laws that imposed burdensome restrictions on clinics that were dressed up as health regulations. And the question in whole women's health was whether Texas could get away with that. I'm just diving into some of those. So one of the regulations was having um, permitting privileges at, at a hospital, correct? For um, Admitting uh, admi- privileges. Thank right. you. Admitting privileges. So essentially, if um, a patient of theirs um, was in bad health and needed to go to the hospital, they'd need to ad- uh, maintain their admitting privileges by um, continuing to have patients in those hospitals. But right. abortions are so safe that that's irrelevant, so they couldn't maintain those privileges, right. correct? Yeah. So admitting privileges are, you know, a, a hospital j- just means that, like, you are the doctor who has the power to sign the form that says this person is now admitted to the hospital. It's not a credential that really means all that much. You know, if, if someone is treated by a doctor who does not have admitting privileges at the hospital and they have some sort of complication that requires them to go to a hospital, it's not like the ambulance says, oh, we're not going to come pick you up because your doctor doesn't have admitting right. privileges. You know, you, when you show up at the emergency room, they don't turn you away. It's just that a different doctor's signature will eventually appear on, on, on a form somewhere. But it sounds like something that could, with the right inflection and cadence, be a common sense protection for women's right. health. I, I, exactly. And the, the trick here is that it is, you know, and you alluded to this, Tracy, it is actually very difficult for many abortion providers to get admitting privileges in hospitals, sometimes because the hospital itself is run by people who are anti-abortion. They just refuse to give it. But another reason is that typically a hospital isn't going to go to the trouble to give a doctor admitting privileges unless that doctor admits a certain quota of patients every year. And as you said, abortions are actually so safe that they almost never result in complications. Um, there was one hosp- uh, there was one clinic that was um, impacted by this law that performed something like 17,000 abortions and never had a case where a woman had to go to the hospital. And so the abortion providers can't get admitting privileges because they're never going to admit anyone. Because everything is on the up and up because right. it is a healthy procedure. Yeah, so, right. It's amazing. So it's, it's – um, I think you said this in one of your, your – um, 
your articles covering this, but essentially this law was a solution in search of a problem. Right. This program only exists in its current form thanks to those who chip in a few bucks each month to keep us going. And this month, I'm running a big summer fundraiser. This year, I'm raising money for climate change organizations through Climate Ride, as I've done before. The idea is I pledge to ride my bike from Acadia National Park in Maine all the way down to Boston over a five-day stretch. It's about 300 miles in total. I have started my training rides to get in shape for it, and now all I need is donations to get me to my fundraising goal of $5,500. But that's not all. To sweeten the deal, I am offering free best-of-left t-shirts that are usually not available at all anywhere to anyone who contributes at least $25 to my climate ride and also signs up as a member of the show to help keep us going strong. Members get access to bonus content, and this week's bonus content went pretty deep. I talked about whether it helps the fight against racism to focus on how we talk or if that's just treating the symptoms while ignoring the root causes. Also, what kind of damage does it do to the country to have never had a female president? Is it just bad symbolism or is it something more? And finally, does Hillary really have to be twice as good to be considered half as qualified to be president because of sexism? And how does Bernie Sanders being in the race change people's opinion of Hillary? So it was clearly a jam-packed show. For details, go to bestofleft.com and click on the big summer fundraiser banner where you will be directed on how to contribute to my climate ride, sign up as a member and submit your thank you gift t-shirt order thanks so much for your support some people say the sky is just the sky but i say why deny the obvious job why deny the obvious job let's do case in point sure let's start with one of the many areas that you cover and talk about how the lies begin and how they trickle down and then how when they're countered people believe them anyway. Most of our audience has probably heard Todd Aiken saying that when a woman is raped, she's not going to get pregnant because the body has a way of shutting that down. Yeah, there's a little switch. It's magic. Right. Yeah. You may laugh, but in the wake of that, talk about what happened. Uh, first, can we talk about how Todd Aiken said that? Because I think that's, that's one of the things that led me to write this book is in that period in 2012 when I started this, Todd Aiken, as Angie pointed out, said this in the on television in a local St. Louis station, got caught, spread everywhere. And here's the thing. If you watch the video of Todd Aiken saying that, what becomes very clear is that Todd Aiken was not lying. Why? What? Wait, he was, <laughs> but he was saying something completely untrue. Yes, but he wasn't lying because lying requires intent. To, to actually lie, you have to intentionally deceive somebody. Todd Aiken 100% believed every word he was saying was true. Why did he believe every word he was saying was true? Because he had heard it from the pulpit. He had heard it from people he trusted in the, pro, in the anti-abortion community. He had heard it over and over and over again. So I, I'm like, where did this come from? How, how did the anti-abortion community start believing it? Who was patient zero? I end up at this 1973 out-of-print book that I spent way too much money on Amazon for called Abortion and Social Justice. And in the book, there is a chapter by a guy named Dr. Frederick Mecklenburg, who's an OBGYN. Right? It's a compendium of anti-abortion chapters written pre-Roe. This is the year before Roe, actually. And he writes a chapter about how there should not be a rape exemption to abortion laws. Because that was actually a big debate back then. And he says there shouldn't be, 
because women who are raped can't get pregnant, basically. And let me, let me lay this out. And he has a footnote, and the footnote on that statement goes to a 1967 speech, 67, 68 speech at Georgetown University by this noted professor. It says, here's the problem. When a woman is raped, her, she can't get pregnant. And the evidence of this was a study done at Plotzi Prison in Berlin, Germany, during World War II, where women were taken into the gas chamber, thought they were going to die, taken out of the gas chamber, and they didn't ovulate when that happened. Now, beyond the citation of Nazi medicine, there was, there was other problems. The biggest problem was Plotzi Prison in Berlin had no gas chamber. It was a, it was a camp for political prisoners. Now, there was a study done at the prison by actually a noted anatomist that they would have had access to. And the study said women under prolonged periods of stress, starvation, imprisonment do not ovulate. That is true. That became in this kind of chain women under intense periods of stress, of instantaneous stress and trauma don't ovulate, which is untrue. That's how it travels through. Let me say something pretty scary. Dr. Frederick Mecklenburg, the guy who wrote the chapter in that book, until recently was the head of the OBGYN department at Nova Fa Fairfax Medical Centers, which is one of the largest medical centers on the East Coast. It's like the, I think it's the largest hospital chain in Virginia. And he was head of their OBGYN department until recently. And he never... He never uh, said what I wrote in 1973 was untrue. I called the hospital. I called their press folks. They wouldn't let me talk to him. They basically wouldn't let me have this conversation. They refused to talk to me anymore. Because I was like, can't he just say what he wrote? We all cite. We make mistakes, right? Just say that's wrong. And they wouldn't talk to me. Amy Hagstrom-Miller is the founder and CEO of Whole Woman's Health, the company that runs seven clinics nationwide and that became the lead plaintiff in this case. I am so pleased to have her today with me right here in studio. Welcome to Amicus. Amy. Thank you so much. So, Amy, I think listeners know some of this, but maybe not all of it. So let's set the table and help us understand what the two provisions of HB2 were that were at issue and how it is that Whole Women's Health... Uh, with the Center for Reproductive Rights becomes the plaintiff in this case. Sure. So HB2 actually had four onerous requirements in it. Um, there was great restrictions on medication abortion and a 20-week ban. And then the two that we challenged with this lawsuit were the requirement that all abortions be formed in an ambulatory surgical center, oftentimes referred as an ASC, which is really like a mini hospital. And two, that all physicians who provide abortion services need to have active admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of the clinic. So those are the two that we took on with this lawsuit. As you probably know, we've had a new restriction pass every two years since 2000. Um, the only good thing about the Texas state legislature is that they meet every other year. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, at this time, you know, it was really clear to me that and I fought the law from the beginning. You know, I was there testifying when it was SB5 in the Senate. And so when it came, you know, when the law passed, it just became, you know, obvious that we were the people to champion the challenge. And um, for me, 
I had been testifying about how we can't, not only could we not afford to build an ambulatory surgical center, but that it was wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that I felt like, you know, in our quest to sort of comply um, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, each two years we have to comply with new regulations. We write a whole new set of protocols. We have to sort of comply, comply, comply. That if you pick your head up and you start looking at this sort of compliance endeavor, you realize it's absurd. And it's sort of changed your relationship with the patient. And it's also, you're practicing for the regulators if you're not careful. Can you can you talk a little bit, you flicked at it, but I think probably a lot of listeners know that the two provisions that were challenged, ambulatory surgical centers and the admitting privileges, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of listeners, they sound pretty innocuous and, mm-hmm. benign, you know, hey, right. maybe it should look like a surgical center. Maybe doctors should be able to rush, you know, a right. person to the hospital. So can you just walk us through those two provisions and help us understand the thing that is intuitive to you, which sure. is we don't need these? Sure. So 70 to 80 percent of the abortions in this country are done by small independent providers that are that are community-based clinics, not unlike Whole Women's Health. Um, the majority of those clinics were started in the 70s, right after Roe. Um, a lot of them are women-owned businesses. Some of them are doctor-owned practices. Um, and so we provide the majority of abortions in the country. Planned Parenthood is the largest single abortion provider. Um, and most of us independent providers um, also do family planning. Some of us do obstetrics. Some of us do community health care as well in, in our practices. So we're in line with that sort of community clinic philosophy and, and sort of fabric of healthcare in the country. You know, family medicine doctors, um, a lot of physicians that you find locally in your communities. Our practice and abortion practice specifically isn't a hospital based endeavor, right? So abortions take about five or 10 minutes. They're very safely done in a doctor's office setting. Um, there's no anesthesia. Women walk into the procedure room, walk out of the exam room. Um, we at Whole Women's Health invite people's families to come in and you know, a, a woman's loved one to come into the procedure room with her. Um, it's done in, a, in the same exam room. You might have a, you know, annual checkup in or a pap smear in or whatever. And so what happened with the introduction of the ambulatory surgical center requirements or the admitting privileges requirements is a couple of things. One, it's a, it's an over medicalization. It's, it's what they call a supply side restriction. So they're trying to come up with a restriction that's going to close clinics down by requiring onerous physical plant requirements or onerous sort of regulatory requirements. But what they were brilliant at, honestly, is pitching those requirements under the guise of women's health and safety, right? right? So they messaged the privileges requirement as though it was somehow some some sort of way to be sure that a doctor was adequate or, you know, had the proper credentials. Um, so the talking points sound reasonable. When you go back to community-based medicine, the vast majority of physicians who have doctor's offices don't have hospital privileges because the majority of their medical practice isn't hospital-based. Right. Um, so they're not if they're not doing surgeries... Um, or they're not delivering babies as an OB, they don't necessarily maintain those privileges. One, because there's a, lots of requirements in the hospital, the, the least of which is a, a number of patients you have to admit annually. Um, and that's because it's a revenue-generating thing for the hospital, sure. right? So part of privileging requirements is you have to have a certain amount of surgeries to get privileges. You have to have a certain amount of admissions to the hospital annually to maintain them. The catch-22 is that abortion is one of the safest procedures known to medicine, period. And we, knock on wood, hardly ever have hospital admissions. When my clinic in Austin was open over a 10-year period, we had one hospital admission. So because of the safety of abortion, we're not going to ever admit 10 to 12 patients a year. And if I had a doctor who had that many admissions, they wouldn't be working for whole themselves. Right, you know? right. And so it's this kind of strange... 
you know, practice where they tried to say, oh, the doctors don't have an affiliation with a hospital. Well, neither do most sort of dermatologists or family medicine doctors or most office-based practices. So they, they sort of put forward this lie really about continuity of care, where the real continuity of care is your doctor, um, whether it's an abortion provider or any other physician, would usually call the hospital and, and do what's called the transfer. Right. And it would have a relationship with the doctor who's receiving the patient. And that's what we had before HB2. And it had worked for 40 years. We always had um, a backup arrangement or transfer agreement with a doctor if in case we ever needed it. Um, and similarly with the ambulatory surgical center, it sounds like, oh, why shouldn't women have, We need an HVAC. Yeah, why shouldn't women have surgery? Why right. shouldn't it be? Well, first of all, abortion isn't surgery. Right. There's no incisions um, and there's no anesthesia. The patient's not, you know, completely asleep like she might be for knee surgery or cataract surgery or other things that are done in a, in a surgical center. So what you have with an ASC requirement is this onerous physical plant requirement, the airflow system, the hallway widths, that is completely and totally unnecessary for abortion procedure. The abortions we perform in an ASC and that we perform in the clinic are done the same. The the procedure doesn't change at all. We just have to do it in this building that requires about a 40% more overhead in order to operate it and doesn't add one bit of safety to the woman's experience or to the actual procedure. So, Amy, Unbelievably, in 48 episodes of this show, we have never had the name plaintiff in the show because we talk about footnotes and we talk about glosses on footnotes and then we talk about dissents and we talk a lot about doctrine, but we don't often have the person who's been on this case from the beginning. And I feel like maybe a lot of listeners don't even know what that involves. Um, What is it that we miss, those of us who just kind of tuned in Mm -hmm. when Hellerstedt comes to the U.S. Supreme Court? Tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit of the process of going through this from the trial level. So as you probably figured out, my approach to abortion is this open and honest. I have nothing to hide. I stand in the light. And so I felt very called to be the plaintiff in that way because the the state's approach was very much of a gotcha approach. Like they wanted to sort of snare us on the abortion and money stigma or they wanted to sort of show we had, you know, they have this stigma that abortion providers, you know, are profiteers or whatever. So they wanted to show that we had all this money and we could afford to build an ASC. And the only reason we didn't want to build an ASC is had to do with money. So part of being the plaintiff was everything I have was subpoenaed. I I mean, boxes and boxes and boxes of information. The state had well over 10,000 of my personal emails. They have seven years of Whole Woman's Health financials for all five of our Texas clinics. They have every doctor contract. They have every lease, every mortgage, every single budget for any time I did a physical plant improvement. Because we're trying to make this argument that this sort of physical plant requirements of an ASC are not only onerous, but that they aren't affordable. And so one of the things I was actually sort of excited to share my financials with them because we haven't made more than a 1% profit since 2010, right? (laughs) And so it, it just sort of... You know, most of us in abortion are here because of the the human rights and justice cause and not because it's not an easy, quote unquote, business to be in. You know, you're not going to go into abortion because you're interested in profit. You're interested in making the world a better place. And so I saw this role as a, a way that I could really you know, one, illustrate the humanity of the abortion provider, but also provide facts and data. I mean, I have all of this material, all of this information. And so that discovery process was intense. Um, we worked with 25 hospitals um, in five different cities on behalf of 14 physicians trying to get admitting privileges. And we were only able to secure privileges for four of them. 
And is that because some of them were religious hospitals who on yeah. principle wouldn't? Yeah. yeah. Or therefore, I have a, a handful of board-certified OB-GYN ph- physicians who are semi-retired, who haven't done surgeries, you know, in maybe 10 years in their practice, so they didn't have a surgical case log to be able to get, ad- you know, admitting privileges, et cetera. So all of that data was turned over to the state to illustrate why admitting privileges are, you know, onerous and why ambulatory surgical center requirements, we can't just fundraise and get, you know, $26 million to build an ASC as a small community-based independent provider. So that discovery process was intense. Then I had to do, um, well, I was a witness in the first trial, and then I um, had to do a deposition for the second trial. And, you know, I was sort of the lightning rod, Right. So they wanted to depose me both as Amy Hagstrom Miller, the individual, and Amy Hagstrom Miller, the representative of the corporation. And so there was a lot of back and forth of them trying to get me twice or trying to make it seem like I wasn't making myself available. Like all these sort of nasty things were going back and forth. And finally, they, uh, we set an agreement and they deposed me on a Sunday, which I found, you know, interesting for the state. Um, and my deposition was nine and a half hours. Um, and that was incredibly intense, um, incredibly intense to prepare for. Um, and that sort of really sort of suave, nice approach of the um, attorney who deposed me trying to elicit information. And then that sort of the tone really changed about halfway through the deposition when, you know, there was this, OK, I'm not this approach isn't getting me what I want. You know, so it was really intense. Um and people always say, you know, did they give you lunch? No, they didn't give me lunch. <laughs> I got a couple of breaks, <laughs> but it was pretty, you know, it wasn't, it was professional, but it was not a friendly endeavor. And it wasn't witnessed by the public in the same way that my, um, you know, cross-examination at the trial was. Then I was in the witness stand for five and a half hours in the trial, um, you know, longer than anybody else because there was this sort of gotcha. And they made me do lots of things. Like um, they had me read our complication logs out loud. You know, they photocopied them and tried to make it look like there was a whole bunch of them, you know, gave me this volume. And when, in fact, they had photocopied the same page a whole bunch of times and (laughs) a lot of different things. But, you know, they tried to do this sort of gotcha. And you have to be not only on your game, but I am very aware of the stigma of abortion providers. And so I'm on my game intellectually for the for the endeavor, but I'm also on my game. I want people to see like, oh, look at her. She seems nice, you know, because everybody has some abortion stigma, you know, and so I'm very aware of that in the courtroom. So I'm not going to sort of snicker or I'm not going to, um, you know, be snarky. There was one um, cross-examination where the, the state's attorney, um, and I could see his face. Nobody else in the courtroom could see his face, you know, so I could tell that it was a stressful endeavor for him. Um, but no one else, you know, in the courtroom other than the judge could see could see that sort of emotion on his face. But he was trying to sort of set up this premise that I might be, I might have some conflict about the income that we have in our clinics, the the sort of abortion and money stigma. And so he made some comment like, well, I know how many abortions you do in your Fort Worth office. And he was trying to make the argument we could afford to turn the Fort Worth office into an ASC was his sort of fundamental premise. And he was like, I know how many abortions you do because I have the statistics here and I've been to your website and I know how much you charge for them. And, you know, I know, you know, and then he just said, I know you're not in this business to make a killing. Right. Oh, and so it was this moment of like, oh. I, you know, wow, I can't believe you just said that. And I just, you know, looked at him very professionally and smiled and the entire courtroom just gasped, you know. Um, and it was this sort of like trying to get me, you know, this gotcha kind of thing. But um, I'm not, there's nothing I'm hiding. So you can't really gotcha me, you know. <laughs> there's nothing, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. And, and um, you know, we shared all of our books. We shared all of our contracts. There's nothing to hide. And so that sort of gotcha premise um it just didn't work. 
One in three women in the United States get one abortion, at least one abortion, by the time they're 45 years old. Not many women talk about it. But recently, Chelsea Handler wrote about her experience getting two abortions at the age of 16 in Playboy magazine. Now, part of the reason why she did this is, of course, abortion and reproductive rights in general um, have been a hot-button issue, especially after the Supreme Court's ruling on Texas's uh, restrictive abortion law. Now, I love that she shared her story, and I think that it emboldens other women to not feel shame about it or shameful about it. She says, the idea that I would have had a child and raise it by myself at that age, again, she was 16, when I couldn't even find my way home at night was ridiculous. My parents recognized that, so they acted like parents for one of the very first times in my life and took me to Planned Parenthood. I felt parented, ironically, while I was getting an abortion. And when it was over, I was re relieved in every possible way. So she did what a lot of 16-year-old girls do. She got involved with a guy that was bad news. They had unprotected sex, and she got pregnant. And she had the ability to make a choice. And, you know, even though she thought, maybe I'm going to have this baby, ultimately she decided, no, I'm not ready. And then she got pregnant again in the same year, which, by the way, it takes a lot of courage to admit that. Mm -hmm. um, so she's because it's, people are going to call you more irresponsible. They're going to judge you more. They're going to shame yeah. you more. But look, I was lucky uh, because I wasn't getting late at sixteen, so it didn't run into this issue. <laughs> but that I didn't do anything monumentally life changing at the age of sixteen. But I did plenty of stupid things because I was 16 and I was a young teenager. She was a young teenager having fun. And yes, she was irresponsible like a lot of us. And so I didn't mow the lawn, she got pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> so I know it's a little different. Uh, but what would you have done? What would I have done? I don't know. I know what conservatives do oftentimes. They'll go get the abortion. And then there was a story we told once of a woman who went and was a picketer at abortion lines, got an abortion inside, went outside and picketed again. Oh my God. And, and she did that because she's like, no, 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 I'm not whores like the rest of them. I just caught a bad break and got pregnant. What about that Dijarlet guy? Yeah, <laughs> the, the congressman from Tennessee, three abortions that we know of with his wife and mistress. He said, yeah, but I really, they really needed those abortions. We couldn't afford those kids. Oh, oh, I it see. It was inconvenient for you to have a kid, so it was okay. Right. All right. Um, so Chelsea Handler continues to write, I didn't have just one abortion. I had two in the same year, impregnated by the same guy. I didn't have the money the second time. I had to scrape together the $230 to pay Planned Parenthood, but it was a safe abortion. So I, I want to focus on the fact that she had to pay because one of the pieces of misinformation that you get from conservatives all the time is that your taxpayer money is going toward these abortions. No, they're not. Planned Parenthood gets audited. They are not allowed to spend any taxpayer money, any federal or state funding on abortions. That is illegal, okay? I wanna focus on the safe part because yeah. she likely would have had those abortions anyway, even if it was illegal. We know because abortion used to be illegal in some parts of the country and people would get back alley abortions. And you know what would happen? A lot of times they die. Mm -hmm. So Chelsea, and that, by the way, that doesn't help anybody. The kid dies as well. If you think it's a kid and you thought it was alive, well, when the mom dies, 
what you think is a kid also dies. It doesn't help anybody. And instead, Chelsea Handler survived, had a perfectly good career. Conservatives should be thrilled at the, uh, you know, the input she's had into the economy mm-hmm. as a wealthy person. They're probably on her side now. Now that she makes good money, probably. <laughs> and and would the same uh, thing happen if she had had decided to have the kids? I don't care because it wasn't my decision. It was her decision to make. Yeah. And I'm not going to butt into her life over it. And so uh, I. I uh, want to tell you about an amazing fact I found out because of the story too, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't know it before. But it goes to how prevalent abortion is and why it's important to speak out. One in three women in the United States will have an abortion before the age of 45. I bet you that if you asked people, especially if you ask conservatives, you know, what percentage of women get abortions? Because in their mind, they think, oh, those are the really promiscuous ones, and that's crazy, and. That that doesn't happen to real women. Women I know, not it's like yeah, not one in three women I know. Yeah, it is. It's one in three women, all women, including the ones you know. So my guess is they would think that it's a much much lower number. Uh, but uh, the re- reality is that's a gigantic number, and yet it's all in the closet. They they're too scared to talk about it because there's crazies uh, that don't not only shame you but sometimes put you in danger over it. So it takes a lot of courage for Chelsea Handler to come out and say, yeah, damn it, like one third of women, I did have an abortion, and that's my choice. And I love her for that. I think that was a great, bold choice to make in terms of coming out about it and telling us about it. In terms of the decision to have the abortion, it's not my body, and it's not your body, and it's not any of your business. It's her business. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and maybe cautiously optimistic, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, celebrate the SCOTUS reproductive rights decision with renewed vigilance to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. It has been a pretty amazing month for upholding and protecting reproductive rights in America. The whole women's health decision is being called the most important decision since Roe v. Wade. It not only knocks down Texas' absurdly transparent trap laws, but caused similar laws across the country to fall like dominoes in the days after the ruling. Restrictive laws in at least five other states are expected to fall soon. And this court decision isn't the only thing we have to celebrate. New Hampshire recently restored Planned Parenthood funding. The Raleigh, North Carolina City Council unanimously denied the request of an anti-abortion group to move in right next door to a women's clinic that provides abortion services, and for the first time, the Democratic Party platform vows to repeal the Hyde Amendment, which limits how federal dollars can be used for abortions. It's important to point out that none of these achievements would have been possible without the tireless efforts of reproductive health advocacy organizations, activists, health services providers, lawyers, volunteers, donors, and engaged citizens. So let's take a moment to reflect on the tremendous victory and remember to thank those who made it possible. Okay, now that we're feeling empowered and victorious, let's capitalize on this incredible momentum in the next battle. Because although we've gained ground, sadly, the war is far from over. Even before the SCOTUS decision came down, the anti-abortion movement began to shift tactics. No more of this pretending to protect women's health stuff. Reproductive rights activists now expect anti-abortion groups to put all of their focus 
on the fetus. And we're already getting a taste of what's to come. Here are just a few of the new state anti-abortion laws that went into effect as states began their new fiscal year on July 1st. Florida, Mississippi, and Missouri will stop funding Planned Parenthood with state tax dollars. Alabama, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, and South Dakota now have laws limiting what can be done with the remains of aborted fetuses. Indiana is being challenged on their attempts to require ultrasounds 18 hours ahead of an abortion. South Dakota will ban most abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy, allowing misdemeanor charges against providers. Mississippi is banning the second trimester abortion procedure called dilation and evacuation. The Pennsylvania State House passed a law that includes both the ban on abortions at 20 weeks and the ban on dilation and evacuation, making it the first double abortion ban legislation of its kind. Good for them. First, Idaho now requires abortion providers to give women information about where they can receive free ultrasounds, and a Georgia grant program is now in place for, quote, pregnancy resource centers, unquote. These typically pretend to be reputable medical outfits, but they're usually really just a front for religiously motivated anti-choice advocates to lure people in with the promise of actual medical advice, and then all they do is strongly discourage abortions. As long as these types of attacks on abortion services and access exist, the fight to improve abortion care access will continue. So today, we want to remind you to continue to push for the Women's Health Protection Act, which would prohibit states from passing these kinds of restrictive laws in the first place. Call your legislators and ask them to support the act, or tweet at them using the hashtag Act for Women. You can also learn more about the proposed legislation and download an action toolkit by visiting actforwomen.org. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if getting legally ahead of those trampling on the right to reproductive health care is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about how to pass the Women's Health Protection Act via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Justice Alito, his almost the entire, the bulk of his um, dissent was about an issue of claim preclusion. And I'm going to quickly explain what claim preclusion is so you can understand how absurd Justice Alito's position is. So when you bring a lawsuit and you go to sue somebody, you have to bring every claim you have against that person that arises out of whatever group of facts you're complaining about. That means everything you you are claiming has to be brought. Everything that you could have brought has to be brought. So you can't basically have two, three, four bites at the apple. You can't keep suing and suing and suing. If you lose, sue again. If you lose, sue again. Oh, let me bring another claim and try and attack it. You got to bring them all at once. So Whole Woman's Health, which is the plaintiff in this case, brought its original lawsuit. Like in 20, 20, its first lawsuit was in the first half of 2013. This, the, the, the lawsuit that the Supreme Court just decided was the second lawsuit that they brought. The first lawsuit that they brought, they brought a, they brought an, a facial challenge, right? They just looked at the law and they said, this law is unconstitutional on its face. Mm -hmm. And the court decided, no, it's not. 
um, for myriad reasons, which are very similar to the reasons actually that the Supreme Court game gave today, but I'm not going to get into that. Essentially, uh, the whole woman's health lost its first lawsuit. And then the regulations went into effect. And so they were able to see how horribly um, these admitting privileges laws were actually affecting doctors, were making it very difficult for doctors to get admitting privileges because, for example, hospitals will only give admitting privileges to doctors if they um, sort of pledge to admit a certain number of patients per year, not pledge. Like, I'm going to fuck up this many patients, so I have to admit that this, this many uh, complications. But they need to have a certain number of abortion complications in order to maintain admitting privileges at a, ho- at a hospital. And so because it's about the money. It's all about that base, no trouble? Nope, that's wrong. <laughs> nope, damn it. Dish Khalid? Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. Madam, um, I said madam. But because abortion is so safe, abortion providers don't routinely have to admit patients to hospitals. Um, so that's one reason doctors couldn't get um, admitting privileges. In some cases, hospitals won't give admitting privileges to abortion providers just because they don't like abortion. And a lot of hospitals are run by Cal- run by Catholics, Catholic healthcare systems. And so it, it's it became very very clear that these doctors, specific doctors who were at issue in this lawsuit, were unable to get these admitting privileges. With respect to the ambulatory surgical center requirements, um, the law was passed. But later, Texas passed implementing regulations, which actually specified the sorts of things that these clinics would have to do in order to meet the standards of an outpatient surgical center. And so when they first, when Whole Woman's Health first sued, those repercussions from doctors being unable to get admitting privileges and those repercussions from clinics having to abide by these surgical centers, these, these, um, these ASC requirements hadn't yet been known. And so what Alita was trying to say is that even though a lot of the effects of these laws were not yet known when that first lawsuit was brought, they should have brought those claims anyway. And that just doesn't make sense because if you don't know what the facts are, that are basically going to support your lawsuit, how can you bring that lawsuit? That's just common sense, right? So, I mean, one of my favorite lines in in Stephen Breyer's uh, opinion is, Justice Alito is just wrong in his dissent. We just heard clips featuring Imani Gandhi on This Week in Blackness break down what the whole woman's health ruling was all about. The Young Turks reported on Republicans pushing financially onerous fetus burial laws. Talk Poverty Radio spoke with Supreme Court expert Ian Milheiser on the history of abortion laws leading up to the whole woman's health ruling. Angie Coiro on In Deep got the details on how at least one lie about reproductive health was born and took on a life of its own. Amy Hagstrom-Miller, the plaintiff in the Whole Woman's Health case, spoke with Dahlia Lithwick on the Amicus podcast from Slate about her experience during the proceedings. And as a side note, if you want to dive deeper into any issues having to do with the Supreme Court, Dahlia Lithwick is the go-to person. I've been a fan of hers for over a decade, and her new podcast, Amicus, is a great place to keep up with her. Our activism for today is to keep our collective eyes on the prize and continue our push to pass the Women's Health Protection Act and find Finally, we just heard the breakdown of the dissenting opinion in the case and why it's just plain wrong. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay. 
I wanted to talk about um, the Orlando shooting. Oh, by the way, this is Ruben from Oakland. I wanted to talk about the new evidence that's come to light uh, about Omar Mateen and his lover. Uh, recently, there was it had come to light that Omar Mateen actually did have a gay lover out of the Pulse nightclub. Um, their full name hasn't been revealed, but they go by Miguel. And what they describe kind of lends itself to this really to a really tragic aspect of this crime and they basically say how you know omar mateen you know like that this was a more or less a revenge attack and that it sort of stemmed from omar mateen's feelings that he wasn't accepted or you know that he was you know made fun of or ridiculed by members of that community and i wouldn't necessarily put a bunch of credence to those claims that is to like say you know i wouldn't victim blame in this scenario but i think that it shows pretty clearly the negative effects of toxic masculinity right and i think that that's sort of, that underpins a lot of what occurred in omar mateen's life uh, toxic max masculinity the rules of it underpin the need to you know, commit acts of violence against women, particularly intimate partners, to hate gay people, and to to not be vulnerable. So, like, you know, I think that the inability to be weak or express vulnerability is very important to how all of this played out because it underpins why Omar Mateen probably wasn't able... It underpins why Omar Mateen wasn't able to be honest about his sexuality, um, why he wasn't able to open up to his peers and how he developed this sort of tortured, no one understands me perspective. Because due to the nature of patriarchy, you can't let people know the real you. Otherwise, you're uh, susceptible to attack. You know, if you let people know sensitive details about who you really are, maybe they could use it against you, that sort of thing. But the end result is that you're, you know, sad and alone. And I think one of the essential things for these lone wolf shooters is that they're, they are, in fact, loners. And, you know, when you only have yourself as a sounding board, any sort of ridiculous or um, dangerous idea can seem all the more necessary or uh, normative. And particularly with our American brand of patriarchy. I think that Omar Mateen's decision to declare allegiance to ISIS as a post-hoc justification for his shooting, you know, sort of falls in line with this whole inability to express vulnerability and be honest without, you know, some sort of reprisal. Like, even facing certain death, Omar Mateen would rather have the justification for his actions fall in line with a more traditional macho man American perspective than just the fact that he didn't feel understood and that he needed help. And I think that also at the end of the day, this obsession with being a police officer, NYPD, working out, you know, I think that he kind of just wanted to be part of the traditional American in-group. And because he wasn't white, he, you know, he hated himself, and, well, maybe that's going a step too far, but I think that if my perspective is true, that that 
that that is what would happen, you know, like, why am I not white? Or even worse, like, why am I of Arab descent, you know? And he just sort of, and he kind of just fell in line with the traditional model, you know? It's like, I must be an Islamic terrorist, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think it's just like, and I think that that's, these sort of things are what we're facing sort of with these mass shooters is that, they haven't been given the tools growing up to deal with being vulnerable and as such they've never really had an honest opportunity to develop wholehearted relationships and they are tortured they struggle and then they ultimately commit these awful acts of violence thanks jay have a great day hey jay this is don from bentonville arkansas I just had a chance to listen to your two excellent episodes on Orlando, and it really moved me to want to call in. Because in addition to being progressive, I'm also a pastor. In fact, I have a Facebook page called The Progressive Pastor, where I post videos from a progressive Christian point of view. And as a progressive Christian, I've never been against the LGBT community at all. I've always tried to be welcoming and uh, in my personal life, as well as in the church, but after Orlando, I've really been resonating with the feelings of people like Dan Savage, as you, as he expressed in the clip that you played. It's just not any longer enough to not be against the gay community. We have to be, I think, assertively for them, which means standing up against any form of malice or expression or ignorance, even and perhaps especially when it comes from fellow Christians. I, I know everybody's entitled to their own interpretive point of view and theological point of view, but when it comes to, to planting the seeds and laying the foundation for malice and hatred and ultimately for violence, uh, we have to take a stand. And so I just want to say... Uh, that for my part, I'm committing to speak out and speak up more forcefully whenever I see bigotry and injustice, especially when it hides behind a veneer of faith. From my perspective, the love of Christ requires nothing less. So thanks, Jay, for all that you do for exposing us to progressive points of view and keep up the good work. Last week, we had a call from David from New York, and a couple of people responded to him. So here's a quick refresher on David's comments. Hi, Jay. David here in New York. As a gay man, um, after Pulse, I had a big shock watching a lot of straight people do this whole dance of saying, well, I bet he's a closet case. And then when things started coming out that he probably was a closet case, I go, well, I was right. I want to tell everybody who has those thoughts of, well, he's just a closet case. What that sends to us and what have a lot of my gay friends and I've talked about is that that really says that we have nothing to fear from straight people. We have just have something to fear from other gay people. A lot of people are upset if, if you try and place the blame on Islam and that's, I yes, that is wrong. But it doesn't do anything to place the blame on other gay people as well. Hey, this is Gabriel from uh, Texas. Uh, I'm a gay guy. This is in response to David's call-in. I can agree somewhat. It's more with people that are not exactly the host, but just talking about it on the street and on Facebook. It, it's sort of the same feel as black-on-black crime. Like, it's 
still a crime. It's still a horrible thing. But as soon as you say, oh, well, it was a gay guy that shot up the Orlando uh, nightclub. And then people kind of got infatuated with that. People were like, oh, he had a grinder. Oh, he had all this other stuff. It was a gay person shooting other gay people. It's still a hate crime. But when people start talking about the fact that he's gay more than the fact that he wanted to murder a bunch of people, more than the fact that it was the biggest mass shooting in America at times, and they kind of get infatuated with it, it doesn't help because it's sort of a period. It ends the, it ends the conversation with a lot of people. Because if you already don't like gay people, then it's just a sinner shooting sinners. And if you do like gay people, then, oh no, what happened to this poor gay guy to hate himself? And I never want him to be viewed as the victim. Yeah, it's unfortunate, his life. Yeah, society destroyed it. Yeah, he became angry. But he killed 49 people. Gay or straight, in the end, doesn't matter. But as soon as you get caught up in the news media with whether he had a lover or whether he was on grinder, then you kind of forget that this is a hate crime. Gay or straight shooter doesn't matter. It's a hate crime. You know? So, anyways... That's just the way I feel about it, so I'll talk to you later. Hey, Jay, it's Colin from Cleveland yet again. You asked what people were thinking about the Young Turks clip that David reacted to. I got a much different takeaway from it, and like you said yourself, the reaction from David I found very unexpected as well. As a straight male, I definitely walked away with a different... uh, message from the clip. I don't feel that Jenk was insinuating that it was the shooter's fault for being gay. Jay, I think I got the same message you did. I think the reason it happened, I mean, unfortunately, he was a gay man, it looks like, but the reason it happened was because of the way society treats homosexuality makes it belong in a closet instead of just embracing people for being people, whether they're like you or not like you. The fact that we, as a society, shame homosexuality and, you know, make it quote-unquote icky or gross or disgusting or whatever, that, yes, unfortunately, this is why my cousin, who's a psychologist, said it's a big part of why there is an extremely high suicide rate, just because... People can't deal with being right with themselves and trying to be right from this bullshit construct that society tries to make us fit into. A lot of sympathy for me right now, for the gay community right now. This, this, the whole Orlando thing I really brought it, I think, to the light of a lot of people who don't understand the issues or like to pretend that those issues don't exist. I think those issues do exist, that we do treat gay people like, at best, second-class citizens, and we really, truly need to start accepting them uh, for the equals that they are. Anyway, Jay, that's just my two cents. Love the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, today I want to thank all of those who have already chipped in to my Climate Ride fundraiser. Uh, These people have already chipped in. John, Anonymous, Jeff. Mahalia, Christopher, Mark, 
Eva, Ben, Todd, Sam, Rajaswari, Sarah, Glenn, Laura, Jane, and Roger. So all of those people have brought us to just shy of $500. So we got a long ways to go, but that is an excellent start. So huge thanks to all of you. And, and of course, thanks to everyone who has already decided to uh, donate to the Climate Ride or maybe also sign up for a membership, take advantage of the free t-shirt giveaway, but you just haven't gotten around to doing it yet. Uh, thank you in advance. I, I know that you will be signing up any day now. Now today, I just wanted to give a quick response to one of the callers who, who mentioned sort of offhandedly that he didn't want the Orlando shooter to be seen as a victim. And I totally get that. Like the idea of shifting our focus and, and seeing the shooter as a victim seems like sort of a disservice to the actual shooting victims who are actually dead. But the truth is that they almost always actually are victims. That's why it's called the cycle of violence. Anger, abuse, assault, all of these things, they're often perpetrated by people who had similar abuses directed at them. You know, it doesn't help to think of violent or deadly people as these two-dimensional caricatures, simply evil people who did an evil thing, you know? That becomes an easy way to put that kind of violence behind us, put it out of our minds, just you know, let us pretend that there's nothing we could have done and that some people are just evil, so we need to defend ourselves against evil people or lock them up and throw away the key. But no, the vast majority of people are not born as sociopaths or psychopaths with no moral compass who want to do evil things. People are made that way by complicated combinations of the structures of society and a person's individual experiences. You know, I support a rehabilitative vision of a justice system for just this reason, because justice should take into consideration the needs of both the victim and the perpetrator and society as a whole. You know, working to make the lives of all involved parties, including society, better. Even in the Brock Turner Stanford sexual assault case that I just highlighted recently, uh, you know, I thought it was a complete miscarriage of justice to sentence him to only three to six months of jail. But nor do I think that justice would have been served by simply locking him up for the maximum allowable amount of time. You know, the survivor in that case herself said that what she wanted more than anything was for Brock to understand that what he had done was wrong. That is a call for thoughtful, restorative justice, not not blind vengeance. And as far as we know, Brock wasn't even a victim of anything as specific as, you know, assault or anything like that himself. Uh, maybe just that he was raised by tone-deaf, completely unempathetic parents. But if we can't take the time to recognize that some of the most violent and dangerous people in our society are themselves victims— then we'll never fully understand how important it is to stop the cycle of violence and victimization where it starts, as well as the benefits that can be reaped by attempting to rehabilitate people rather than just throwing them away. That's what I think anyways. Keep the comments coming in, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks again to all of those who have been supporting the show by joining in with our summer fundraiser, either by becoming a member or contributing to my climate ride, or both. 
Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the best Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained. We can see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing. We can see past.